We have preaching for us today our friend and guest, John Kraft. Uh, as Nathan is out of town, I remind you, those of you who have been praying for Nathan, to continue praying for the conference that he's speaking at uh, this weekend and has been. John is RUF pastor at Rhodes College and has been there for a couple of years, and we've had him here a few times before. Some of you will know John. Um, he's preaching to us today from the book of Mark and chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible and want to follow along, then that's on page 851. Um, and um, he's informed me that uh, the way that he structured his, uh, his uh, sermon around this rather lengthy text this morning, uh, is, will, it'll be easier if we just read the first portion now, and then he can pick up the following portions in a little bit. And so we'll read verses 26 to 31. Mark 14, 26 to 31. But I'd invite you to now hear and listen as the Lord speaks to us from his word. Mark 14, 26 to 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that provides us such assurance that you have taken from us the identity and the artifacts of the old man and that you have given to us a new heart of flesh and made us into a new creation. And that through that you promise that you are transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen us in that reality. That you would use your word today to do so, and as well as the nourishment of the sacrament. That you would go before both and prepare our hearts for them. Open our eyes to see what we might see and allow it to sink deeply into our hearts and increase our faith. Help us in our unbelief. Soothe our doubts assuage our fears, take away from us our temptations, and give us strength to stand within those that remain. Would you do all of this through your word? And Lord, even as we think of that, then we pray for one another, and especially we lift up to you our pastor Nathan, and ask that you would bless and keep him in the work that he is doing to speak and preach your word, and encourage uh, those down in Prattville, Alabama this weekend. And Lord, we pray for George Trezevant. And we pray that you would bring healing to him for the burns that he received over a campfire this weekend. That even as he is now at Le Bonheur in the hospital receiving treatment, that you would give comfort to him and also to his family. 
and give them that very trust and hope and assurance and grace that we have just given you thanks for and that we also cling to so desperately. And Lord, we pray for those other needs among us, that you would encourage them. Lord, there are so many things that um, are burdening our hearts today as we gather. So many things that are distracting our minds. So many things that have our attention. Perhaps that are making us stressed or eager or anxious or overjoyed or fearful. Lord, for all of these, we know that uh, you have an answer for them. So we pray that you would answer that from your word and from your sacrament and from the blessings that come from gathering as your people this morning. For we ask this together in Christ's name. Amen. Before I turn, just I'm glad to be back. Um, in fact, I think last time I came, there was like a monsoon outside, and I was driving through flooded uh, flooded uh, streets coming here, so much brighter day today, beautiful day. And uh, I just always enjoy when Nathan asks me to come and uh, speak to y'all, so I appreciate y'all having me this morning. I know that uh, I just prayed, but I feel like praying one more time. So let me, let's pray and then go to God's word. Holy Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful morning, this beautiful weekend, Lord. I pray that your word today um, would encourage us, would give us rest, and that um, you would speak the gospel to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so one of my, uh, one of the movies I've ended up, I think when you have kids, and I have a William who's 10 and Lizzie who's eight. There's certain movies, depending on their age range, that you've seen a thousand times. And, uh, one of those movies is the, is the Lego movie. And I've, I've seen it quite a bit and I actually enjoy it as well. Um, but one of the themes of the Lego movie, which I think is a theme, um, I think a, for a lot of us, at least in my heart, um, which has an, an average guy and every man, uh, sort of character named Emmett, you know, who, who is just kind of average, but desperately wants to be special. He wants to be a hero. And, and in, in the, the movie, um, I'm not trying to spoil too much, but he gets mistaken for kind of the special, this great hero, even maybe a messiah who was going to come um, through some prophecies that have been made. And he's nervous because he kind of realizes that it's probably a mistake. He's really not uh, the special person. But he so desperately wants to be a hero that he kind of goes along with it. And, um, you know, at first, uh, you, you, in watching that movie, you kind of pity him as somebody who desperately wants to be more uh, than he can be. Um, but, but actually, I started to think about it, and I think that that's myself as well. That I'm very much, that I want to be the hero. That I, I want to be uh, the special person. I want, you know, everybody uh, to think that I am great. Uh, the other night... Uh, we were watch, I was watching a college football game, and it's probably a couple weekends ago. And uh, my wife, who always uh, want, Lee always enjoys uh, from time to time taking those like BuzzFeed surveys, like you know which character, which Star Wars character are you? And she was doing the which which Harry Potter character are you? And um, and she could kind of tell that I was frustrated. I didn't want to really do the survey. I wanted to watch the college football game. So she started kind of asking me questions distractedly. And, and, and so I answered kind of, you know, not really paying attention. And then she said, oh, well, you got Draco Malfoy, who's the, the villain of Harry Potter. Um, and I immediately stopped watching and called football. I'm like, we're taking this survey again. And, uh, and as I, with more attention, I'll have you know, after six times, I was, I was Harry Potter. So I was excited about that. <laughs> 
you know, we want to be the hero. And, and this passage we're looking at today is we're looking at Peter. And the early church is pretty unanimous that Peter is actually the main source for Mark's gospel. And so Peter's who I want to look at in this passage, uh, kind of uh, going on a before the night of Jesus' crucifixion, especially as we kind of con- contrast him with Jesus. And so, and so here in the passage that Ed read earlier, 26 through 31, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13.7, a book I'm sure all of y'all have memorized, Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 13.7 about sheep uh, prophesying that all the disciples will be scattered, that they will be like sheep being scattered. And, and Peter will not hear of this because, again, Peter wants to be special. Peter hears Jesus and replies, even though they all fail, you know, the other disciples might, might fit that criteria, but me, I will not fail. I will be with you. And, and, and we look at that and we think, you know, what a self-righteous statement. You know, he was probably still mad because earlier, earlier we read in Mark that James and John kind of came to Jesus in secret, wanting to kind of be the second and third in command. And, you know, Peter would rack to be the second in command. Um, He's also probably freaking out because earlier in the evening, Jesus had predicted that one of them would betray him at the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and Peter's probably wanting to make sure that Jesus knows I'm not going to be that person who betrays you. He sees this as his time to prove to Jesus how loyal he is, especially compared to those other people, those other disciples. You know, I will be your hero, Jesus. I will stay true to you. I will be special to you. And Jesus, not out of anger, but matter-of-factly states just how heroic Peter is going to be in the next 24 hours. And he looks at Peter and he says, before morning, you will betray me three times. You're going to deny me three times. And you would think with this kind of prophecy of failure, Jesus would be angry at Peter. But yet, even in verse 28, we see that Jesus promises reunion. Jesus shows that he is going to give Peter hope along with this kind of negative prophecy, and that they will meet again, and that it will be okay. And so that's where we kind of leave, and so I want to dig more into the story here in Mark 14, verses 32 through 42, if you'll read with me. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, Jesus is beginning to feel the immediacy of what is coming. And the first thing we see here is that it shows that Jesus is very human. That Jesus is not some robot. That Jesus actually has emotional needs. Verse 33 shows that Jesus is distressed and troubled. 
He has brought the disciples he is closest to, who you would see as his best friends, Peter, James, and John, to share with them in his distress and his trouble. In verse 34, Jesus tells his friends just how upset he is, that he is sorrowful, even to death. It kind of conveys this great, great sadness, this great weight and trouble that Jesus is feeling. And notice here that Jesus has two actions when he has profound sadness. He prays and he gathers his friends. When Jesus experiences sadness in the most troubling time of his life to this point, he thinks relationally, I need to go to God and I need to have fellowship with others. You know, Jesus doesn't, you know, go alone into the woods. He does not close the door to his room You know, he does not alienate himself from others or simply kind of disappear and be distant from everyone. He takes his friends with him. He seeks out people to care for him. You know, and I don't know where it got started kind of in our culture, and I see this very much at Rhodes College. Uh, This culture of, you know, uh, that it's holier to do it yourself. You know, that it's more mature to kind of hold it all in. To just say you're fine and to not let other people see your weaknesses or have to care for you. To not be dependent on anyone. And not saying there's not time to be by yourself in life. You know, and especially to go away and pray. Just saying that Jesus does not just go go away by himself. He goes to pray and he gathers his friends that Jesus gets with his God and he gets with people. And so I say that to say, if the only perfect human who I believe happens to be God, and I think the Bible says that Jesus is fully God and fully man, if the only perfect human to ever live needs to be vulnerable, needs to open up to people, I think it's safe to say that we might need that as well. Notice for Jesus showing weakness, showing sadness, Letting people know that he's troubled is not shameful. It's not shameful. He doesn't see it as a weakness. He sees it as reality in the kingdom of God. In fact, to Jesus, maturity is showing weakness. Look at the Beatitudes. Maturity is admitting that you are needy and that you are dependent. In fact, I would say Jesus' main critique of the Pharisees in the New Testament is that they always felt, they always acted like they had it all together. And that they were perfect. And that they were fine. And, uh, I, I was, I, uh, to much to my, uh, parents, uh, joy, I studied film in college. I was a film studies major. And, um, and so one of the things because of that, I always enjoy that, you know, the Oscars and then, you know, the Emmys, uh, were last week. And, you know, and, and sometimes I think that, uh, and so I'm always interested in that, but sometimes I think that, that myself and, and that other Christians, uh, that, that we deserve Oscars, that we deserve Emmy Awards for the great actors that we are, for the great masks we put on in life. You know, everything's fine, telling jokes out in the lobby, when in fact, there's a large part of us that are, that are scared to death about life, that are insecure that are stressed out, that, that even struggled on a Saturday night sleeping last night because of all the stresses and cares of life. You know, that you're stressed about your job, your school, your future, your family, your finances. 
you know, that life is actually anything but fine. And I say that because this is the church. And if we can't be real here, where can we be real? And so I think Jesus shows us that we need to be more real, that it's okay to be vulnerable, and that it definitely is not shameful. But quickly, let's go look at this prayer that Jesus prays, because Jesus prays to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So what's going on here? You know, first we see the intimacy that God the Son has with God the Father. That Jesus can call the Father an intimate name, Abba. You know, people always talk about how best to translate this, but in a sense it's like Daddy. You know, and the Trinity is a very hard concept for us that I'm not going to get into. Um, but what it shows is that at his core, God is relational. He's three persons eternally. And, and you know, uh, my daughter Lizzie uh, is funny because, so she grew up in a household where all these college students were coming over all, all the time and calling me John. Um, and, uh, and so Lizzie kind of got, con- you know, confused for a little while, and she was like, I want to call, you know, I'm going to call dad John too. And especially, and she also heard, you know, her mommy sometimes when she was upset with me, uh, call me John Crafts. And so Lizzie began to not only want to call me John, but then when she was very frustrated at me because I was making her go to bed, she would say, John Craft, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and as much as some of my college students and other people got a kick out of uh, out of my daughter calling me John or even my full name, uh, you know, I remember sitting down with Lizzie and talking to Lizzie, um, you know, and, and Lizzie, you know, I would love if you called me daddy and not John. And she was like, well, why, you know, all, you, all the other people in your life call you John. And I was trying to explain to her, well, that's exactly the point. That's the point. Because my relationship with you is special. You're the only daughter I have. And so I love it when you call me daddy. Because it reminds me of the special relationship we have. And I think this is what's trying to be conveyed. The Bible shows that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is a very, very special relationship. And it's a relationship, you know, that it's more intimate than any relationship that we have known or understand. And this is kind of one of the more personal views we get of it. You know, it's the perfect relationship. And yet, Jesus understands that his mission is to lose that perfect relationship, to be forsaken and abandoned by God the Father, to drink the cup of his wrath. And Jesus shows he is truly human. He asks God to find another way. You know, Jesus is not some masochist. He hates pain and death. He wishes there were another way. You see, Jesus faced more on the cross than just the physical suffering at the hands of friends you know, who would abandon him, and enemies who tortured and killed him. The death of Jesus was different. The physical pain, which was unbelievable, was nothing to the spiritual experience of being abandoned by the Father. To try to get you to understand this, think of the time you've been abandoned in life. Maybe by a parent, maybe by somebody breaking up with you, a close friend or family member hurting or betraying you. This is a deeper deeper pain. When you have intimacy with someone and that is ripped away, it feels like death. And many of you have experienced this with divorce. And it's why divorce is so hard. 
and so traumatizing. And Jesus had the most perfect, intimate relationship of the universe. And he willingly loses that. He's forsaken by God the Father. And then experiences the wrath of that person. Something that we call hell. And this is why the Apostles' Creed said that Jesus, says that Jesus descended into hell. Because being forsaken from his daddy on the cross was hell. And so Jesus submitting to the will of the Father has a whole new meaning here. What unbelievable obedience by Jesus and what unbelievable love for us, for his people. Especially if you know how we treat God, rejecting him daily, you know, having to come every week, confess our sin. You know, there's not a week I come and I'm like, oh, I don't have to confess sin. I can take that part off in the church service. You have to do it every week. Look at how Jesus deals with the disciples. After praying, Jesus goes to be with his friends who have fallen asleep in the hour of greatest needs. This happens three times. Peter has not yet denied Jesus three times, but he's already hurt Jesus three times. He's already failed Jesus in a different way. Peter's not so much of the hero. Jonathan Edwards um, reminds us that Jesus had every right to say this to these sleeping disciples. Why should I, infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven, why should I plunge myself into these dreadful torments for these sinners? Why should I leave all my love and glory and take this violent agony of burning into my soul for these who will never repay me? And don't love me enough to even stay awake with me in my moment of greatest need. But Jesus doesn't say this, though he has the right to. He doesn't. In fact, the cross shows that he loves these men who fail him at his time of need. He loves them more than they could even realize. And if Jesus' love can endure the wrath of justice, how could we believe that we can do something to destroy his love for us? If Jesus went to that trouble with his friends and with us, how can we believe that we can do anything to destroy his love for us? All the sins that we've committed and will commit against him, he's already paid for on the cross. And Hebrews 13.5 promises that Jesus will never forsake us. You know, we don't have this distant God. God became human. You know, have you ever been betrayed Have you ever had people fail you at your greatest time of need? Have you ever been unbelievably vulnerable with someone about how depressed you are, about how hurt you are, about how much you're struggling, only to have them lack compassion or to be distracted? Well, so did Jesus. He understands that. Again, Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, You know, if you're lonely in here this morning, pray to a God who's experienced ultimate loneliness. You know, where else will you find someone like this, a God like this, except Jesus? You know, one further point is that we were not created to be alone, that you were created for relationship. And and we often say, and this is one of the things I hear from students all the time, people fail me. People have hurt me. I've tried to be vulnerable, and it's only come back at me and hurt me. Well, you see, Jesus, the God of the universe, needed people, and he knew that they would hurt him. 
He knew, he's already predicted, that his friends would betray him. So just because people sin and will hurt you does not mean you can reject completely intimate relationships with all other people and become an island. And the certain intimacy and union you now have with Jesus frees you to love people who will possibly hurt you, who are a struggle to love. And the gospel empowers us to live a lifestyle of repentance and forgiveness. You know, not a lifestyle as as my students and I think many of us have, of just kind of moving on from one relationship to another, from one church to another, from one neighborhood to another, until you keep searching for that perfect place that won't ever let you down. You know, these don't happen overnight, these kind of relationships. You've got to show up and you've got to be with people. But what Jesus shows us is that you can't disengage and you can't just keep moving over and over and over again in life. Okay, let's finish out this passage. Uh, if you want to read Mark 14, uh, I'll read Mark 14, 43 through 52. And immediately while I was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come at us as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Judas here betrays Jesus with a kiss. And as an army approaches, someone cuts off not, uh, not one of the soldier's ears, but the weakest one there probably, the servant of a high priest. You know, we find out from John's gospel that this is again Peter, that Peter is ready to do battle, you know, probably again trying to make up for the fact that he fell asleep three times with Jesus praying And he wants to again show Jesus, well, I know I messed up that time, but here I'm going to show you what loyalty is. You know, it's funny that when we try to earn God's love, when we try to mask our weaknesses or we try to make up for for past failings, when we try to be the hero, we usually end up hurting other people. And of course, Jesus is not looking for military heroism. He's also not looking for success, for the perfect family for the perfect body, for a 4.0. He's not looking to be, for you to be really well-known, to have the perfect yard, to have the perfect home, to have the perfect theology, or any other way our hero scenarios play out in our heads. In fact, Jesus never really asks us to be heroes. And again, the irony of them coming with this army when Jesus has continually shown that this is not the kind of king or Messiah he is, the only violence that's going to happen is going to be to him. We also have here a short, strange passage of a young man following Jesus. Um, Oftentimes people say this is a young Mark, uh, but we're not sure. Uh, But what it does show us is that everyone is leaving Jesus. They're trying to flee away from Jesus as much as possible, even if it means running naked through the town. Okay, now we're finally, I do, now this time I do promise we're finishing the passage. Mark 14, 53 through 72. 
And they led Jesus to the high priests. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And so this is uh, what we kind of uh, like to call sort of a narrative sandwich, with Peter being kind of at the beginning and the end, uh, with the story of Jesus' trial in the middle. And just look at how unjust this trial is. You know, the Sanhedrin was supposed to practice innocent until proven guilty. They do not. They gave Jesus no defense. They brought out false witnesses who contradicted themselves. They're supposed to take two days for a capital punishment case, but do this quickly. Then they allow people to mock, spit, and beat him. And most importantly of all of this, Jesus was innocent. Jesus was innocent. And again, I say this because Jesus understands oppression. He understands injustice. He has experienced it firsthand. And all of you have experienced in your lives injustice or oppression, some way more than others. And Jesus knows and understands because he suffered the greatest injustice. In fact, though he is the one being judged, ultimately Jesus is the judge and our judge. He is the just one. And this is what he's saying in the, quote, blasphemous reply about being at the right hand of power. Jesus is the ultimate judge. And the Sanhedrin is actually the one, the group of people committing blasphemy. They accuse him of being a false prophet while his prophecy about Peter and his death were coming true. Yet here is a foreshadowing of the cross because the judge, Jesus, takes upon himself the role of the guilty. And the guilty take upon themselves the role of the judge. Or as as, uh, John Stott put it, for the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we 
deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. And that's who Jesus is, our loving, sacrificial judge. Now let's turn to Peter, who continues this contrast theme. You know, because Jesus is questioned by the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in the world for a Jewish person. Peter is questioned, accused by a servant woman with no power in a patriarchal society. So much for dying for Jesus, and yet he denies. Both are charged with something that will be, bring great trouble upon them. But while they're actually false with Jesus, they're true with Peter. Jesus declares the truth. Peter denies truth. Jesus is beaten by guards. Peter warms himself by the fire with the guards. Jesus tells truth despite consequences. Peter avoids the consequences of the truth. Jesus is cursed by the Sanhedrin. Peter brings curse upon himself. Peter showed he was not a hero. Peter showed that he actually only wanted the things that heroes get. And it shows because he so quickly denies knowing Jesus when it means bad consequences, when it means danger for him. And I think like Peter, we all want to be heroes. You know, we all want to be special. However, we really fantasize, I think, about the results of our heroism. You know, receiving approval from others. You know, receiving comfort, receiving fame. You know, earning that love and that appreciation from other people so we can feel good about ourselves. Having a great name that people talk about. You know, I believe Peter wanted to be, like us, the hero. He wanted to be the good guy in this story. Or at least, you know, the second place good guy. The loyal sidekick to Jesus. He declares that he will follow Jesus always. Instead, throughout this passage, we've seen that that Peter fails. And he fails spectacularly. He falls asleep three times when needed. He spontaneously cuts off a guy's ear that would have, you know, created a a violent scene, but for Jesus, um, you know, basically stopping it. And then finally, he denies even knowing this Jesus three times. And the rooster crows, and Peter realizes who he really is, and he begins to weep. Have you ever had this moment? This moment where you you thought you're pretty good, like things are going well. You know, you're you're a good, you know, you're a good parent, you're a good spouse, you're a good student, you're a good employee, you're a good employer. You know, you're good. And then you realize you're not. You're not. You know, what do we do with that kind of failure? What do we do? Because when I look at my life, I realize that not only do I fail to be the hero of the story, not only do I fail to be, as much as I would like to be, Jesus's, you know, faithful side, loyal sidekick, I fail at that. But if I'm really honest, when I look at my story, I often realize that I'm the villain of the story, that I'm the villain, that, that the people around me that I'm supposed to love, that I often hurt, that sometimes I wonder if, you know, the world would be better if I wasn't uh, doing as much as I was doing. You know, what do I do with this realization? What do I do? Well, the answer to this is the gospel. 
And the answer to Peter's weeping is the gospel. Because, like I said, Jesus has never asked us to be the hero of even our own story. Because Jesus is the hero of the story. And when he's the hero of even our stories, everything changes. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross heroically, saving my life. Though I've denied him way more than three times. Though I sin against God, like I said, every day, every week, Jesus submitted to God's will to save me and to save you. And and we leave this passage with Peter weeping, but he did not weep long. Instead, he found great joy as he met the risen Jesus. He jumps out of the boat to go give Jesus a hug. John records Peter seeing the risen Jesus, and he couldn't even wait. He has to jump out of the boat and swim and run to meet him because he finally saw it. He finally understood that he's not a hero, but that Jesus was his hero. And it's not about being a hero, but really what life is about is about loving the true hero and following him. And if you want to turn with me to First Peter real fast, I'll give you all a second. We'll end with this. First Peter 2, starting in verse 22. And these are the words that, that Peter would go on to write. If you remember, Jesus, uh, you know, used the words sheep to be scattered uh, with Peter on the night, uh, probably one of the worst nights of Peter's life, honestly. And here's what Peter says. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter could love Jesus because he realized how much Jesus loved him. And he understood that while he was way more sinful than he would ever realize that Jesus loved him even more. You know, only when we live in this kind of truth will we begin to find security in the cross and not in our present circumstances. Only then will we enter in a relationship secure in Christ so that we can love others who even fail us. Only then will we begin to develop fruit that Jesus calls heroic. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. You know, Peter would go on to die for the name of Jesus. But he could only do that because he knew and he owned that he was the villain of his own story. And then he would describe to people, he would use the phrase that probably defined the worst night of his life to show people how great and wonderful the gospel and Jesus was. And so when we fail like Peter did over and over and again and are exposed, know that we have a true hero, a savior who does not bring shame, does not tell us to do better or else, but a hero who brings forgiveness 
and love and gifts and blessings and showers us with grace for eternity. And so if you feel shame this morning, if you feel like you're not measuring up to the standard that you or the world has set for you, know that Jesus is the one who comes to you and says, you who are weary, you who are heavenly burdened, you who try to be a hero, come to me and be at rest. Be at rest. I am your hero. Let me save you. So let us look to the hero of our story, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. I pray, Lord, um, especially for those in here this morning who are hurting, who might feel such shame that they don't even want to come to your table, Lord. I pray that you will um, show them your love. And I pray that you will ease us of all the expectations that we put upon ourselves that you don't. I praise your name. Amen.